For those of you who have not been here recently or at all, welcome to Grace Church. My name's Mike, and I look forward to talking to you. Anyone who would like to come up and ask a question after the service, I'd love to talk with you then. Uh, we've been in a series of studies on the book of Hebrews for a while now. This is number five, week five. And we're looking today, as Charlie just said, at this subject of Jesus being our great high priest. We uh, talked about it earlier today in the worship service when we confessed our faith using the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we said that the fact that Jesus is a priest means that he offered himself up to God as an offering for sin, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And so we're going to look more carefully at that, not only today, but next Sunday as well, because that theme about Jesus being our high priest takes up a good portion of the book of Hebrews. If, if you know the book of Hebrews at all, you know that the priesthood or the priestly work of Jesus is a big deal in this book. I want to tell you about a man named Bartimaeus. <clears throat> Bartimaeus. His story is told in three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So he's an important figure in the story about Jesus. Bartimaeus, who was he? He was a blind man. He lived in a town called Jericho. And his blindness, scholars believe, was probably caused by purulent ophthalmia. Uh, it was the most common eye disease in Palestine back in the time of Jesus. What it is is that flies would rest in the eyes of little babies and spread the disease from person to person. It was highly infectious. The cornea of the eye would eventually become opaque. And so just think about Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside. He had no job, no family to take care of him. So day after day, Bartimaeus would sit by the road near the gate of the city of Jericho, begging. He would spread out his cloak on the ground, hold out his hand, and hope for a few copper coins. Jericho was about 15 miles from Jerusalem. It was a busy, busy road where Bartimaeus was sitting. Passover was a week away when we read about Bartimaeus in the Bible. And so on this day, when Bartimaeus was sitting out by the roadside in Jericho, it was especially full of travelers going by. Jewish pilgrims were on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. Well, little did Bartimaeus know that things were about to change for him forever because Jesus was one of those pilgrims. Mark chapter 10 says that a great big crowd was walking with Jesus because by now he was a big celebrity in this area. He had healed lepers, he had cast out demons, he had raised people from the dead, he had fed multitudes of people with just a few pieces of bread and fish. He had walked on water, he had made cripples walk, he had healed the deaf, the mute, and yes, even the blind. Everybody in Jericho knew those things, including Bartimaeus. So you can imagine what was going through Bartimaeus' head when he heard people saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus is passing by. 
Bartimaeus did the only thing he could think of to do. He shouted. At the top of his lungs, he shouted, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Over and over, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. You think it'd make any difference to Jesus? Would the rabbi even hear him above the noise of the crowd? Would he be too busy? Would he be too involved with other people to take time out of his schedule to stop and talk to Bartimaeus? Well, to everybody's surprise, the Bible says, Mark 10, Jesus stopped. He stopped and he came over to Bartimaeus sitting by the road begging. And he asked him the most important question God could ever ask a man. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? You know, that is not the only time Jesus asked that question of people. For example, in one other place, it tells us about James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, who came to Jesus one day and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. <laughs> what an impudent thing to say, right? We want, you to do any, we want you to do exactly what we want you to do for us. And instead of rebuking them for their insolence, Jesus, you know what he said? He said the same thing he said to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? See, I think we make two mistakes about God. Two different mistakes. We fall off on one side or the other. One mistake is thinking of God sort of like a vending machine. You know, this is the mistake of the modern day prosperity preachers. Whatever you want, God will do it for you. You know, he's in the business of making us happy. That's one mistake because that's not true. But there is another mistake that people fall off into, and that is thinking that God doesn't really care about your needs. So you might as well not ask or expect anything of Him. Right? Do you see those two different sides of the balance beam that some people fall off on one side, others of us fall off on the other? Oh, God's just, He is not interested in me at all. And so I dare not ask Him to do anything. And that's the mistake I want us to address this morning. If there's one thing I want you to hear today, it is this. God wants to do something for you. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, I came not to be served, but to serve. Yeah, James 4, 2 says you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask God. And it says in Psalm 145, 19, He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. So here's a question for you. If Jesus were to come up to you today and ask you this question, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? Because He asked many people that in the New Testament. What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? You know, I, I think that some of you would say, I need healing from the past. Others of you might say, I'm, I need hope for the future. And others of you might say, I need help in the present. Healing, hope, help. That's what we're going to look at because our, our text this morning tells us that Jesus Christ can supply all three of those things.
because he is our great high priest. Healing, hope, and help. Let's start by talking about healing from the past. Jesus Christ, because he is your great high priest, can heal you of past wounds. Look at verse 14 again. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now underline those titles, if you will, in your mind or on your paper. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now I'll have more to say about the title great high priest later on this morning. But for now, just think about that name that the author of Hebrews gives us about the second person of the Trinity. He calls him Jesus, the Son of God. Now, there is a reason why the author tells us he's Jesus and he's the Son of God. Son of God emphasizes Jesus' divinity, the fact that he is God. Son of God means he is God. He is equivalent to God. But the name Jesus points to his humanity. It's the Greek word Jesus. That's why, that's why we say Jesus in English. It's the Greek word Jesus, and it came from the Hebrew Yeshua. You know, you've heard of Joshua? That's another way of saying Yeshua. It means deliverer or rescuer or savior. There are a lot of people named Joshua in the Bible. Well, Jesus' name actually is the same name, Yeshua, Joshua, or to us, Jesus. And that name points to Jesus' humanity. So what's the author of Hebrews telling us here by this title, Jesus, the Son of God? He's telling us that he was both God and man. God and man in one person. Let's think about the fact that he was a man for a moment. He was a real baby. We talked about that at Christmas, obviously. He grew up to be a real toddler and then a real preschooler like the little boys we saw up here earlier today. Jesus experienced that phase of life. He was a real kid, and then later a real preteen, and then a real adolescent. And then he grew up and matured into a real adult until finally he was nailed to a cross as a young man of about 33. All of those phases of life were real for Jesus, just as real as you and me with real flesh and bones. Jesus was a real man. Now, have you ever processed that and thought about that? Why? Why did Jesus have to go through 33 years of human life from the womb to the cross? Why didn't he just come down as a full-grown man and die on the cross? Why didn't God just send him down at age 33 let him be nailed to the cross as our sacrifice for sin. Well, it's because in order to be Yeshua, in order to be a complete Savior, he had to be obedient to God at every turn, at every stage of life. He had to obey the third commandment, for example, that we've been looking at this morning. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He had to obey that commandment as well as the other seven uh, the other nine, rather. <laughs> I'm not a good mathematician. Uh, he had to share his toys with his brothers instead of fighting over them. You ever think about that? Jesus had to not whine when his mother told him to go to bed. Jesus had to love the, the bully on the playground. Jesus had to clean up his room with a smile on his face. 
Jesus had to praise God instead of complain when he looked in the mirror as a teenager and saw zits on his face. See, he had to face every test that you and I face throughout our lives. He had to say yes to the will of God. Jesus had to face the temptations that we face, like lust and pride and selfishness and greed and worry and hate and more. It says that in verse 15, right? It says there that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet with this big difference. He never sinned. He never fell prey to those temptations and gave in and indulged the flesh. See, Jesus had to pass every test that you and I undergo. Why? Why? So important, men and women and children. He had to go through that and be a real man and be obedient to God throughout his life because we didn't just need Jesus to die to pay for our sins. We needed him to live for us to achieve our righteousness. See, by his death, he paid for our sins and forgave us. But by his obedient life, he accumulated righteousness. See, it's not enough to just be forgiven. You can't go to heaven just being forgiven of all your sin to have a zero in your account. You must have positive righteousness imputed to your account as well. And that's what Jesus did because of his obedient life. Now, what has this got to do with your past? I said that Jesus can give you healing from your past wounds, right? What's all that got to do with your past? Everything. Every one of you is carrying around baggage from your past. Sins you've committed against God and against other people. Mistakes that you've made, words you've said that weren't right, lies you told, liberties you took, corners you cut, laws you broke, people you cheated on, things you did to hurt yourself, things you did to hurt other people, things you should have done that you didn't do. Things done to you, listen, things done to you through no fault of your own at all, but they still make you feel guilty and ashamed, don't they? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In other words, there's a scarlet letter on each one of our chests. There's an accusing finger pointing at everyone in this room, and it's called guilt. It says, you failed. You blew it. You sinned. You're incompetent. You're deficient. You're unsatisfactory. You're unacceptable to God. And Jesus Christ comes along and he says, wait just a moment. I've lived a perfect life to justify you from all the things that you've done wrong. I passed every test that you failed I did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. I even redeemed the evil things that were done against you by other people because I'm Yeshua, the Son of God. I am perfect man as well as holy God. I'm the sinless one who died in your place and I've given you my righteousness. So go free. 
says Jesus Christ to each one of his children. See, you don't have to live a life of regret and guilt and shame. Jesus, the Son of God, it says in verse 14, has passed through the heavens. He lived for you when he was here on the earth. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead for you. He ascended to heaven for you. It says in 1 John 2, 1, that he speaks to the Father on your behalf. Isn't that great news? Oh man, so many times, every single day, I just feel like a total idiot for saying the wrong thing, for doing the wrong thing, for failing to do what I'm supposed to do, for breaking God's law. And to think that Jesus is in heaven right now as my great high priest speaking to the Father in my defense. As my defense attorney, as you, if you will, is a great thought. If you've committed your life to Jesus... You stand, here's the truth about you, you stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, He sees Jesus. And He is absolutely delighted at what He sees. And He says, Behold, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. So friend, be healed today. Be healed today by the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. He's your great high priest. He brings healing from the past, but also gives you hope for the future. Hope for the future. Look at verse 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now skip down to verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the what? Throne. Let's think about that for a few moments. Draw near to the throne of grace. I want you to notice where Jesus is right now. He is not on the cross. Roman Catholic friends, He's not on the cross. The cross is empty. He is not in the empty tomb. He's in heaven, seated on a throne of absolute Power, rule, and dominion. I might have told you before that my dad owned and operated a radio station in the town that I grew up in in South Carolina. It was a little AM radio station, country country and western music all day long, obituary column on the air, just a small town little radio station. And I loved to go up to WBCU. That was the call letters of our little radio station. I would spend many of my afternoons after school in my dad's radio station. And my favorite place in the radio station was where the DJ sat, spinning the records and plugging in the, 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 the advertisements and so on and speaking to the little town of Union, South Carolina. You know what that room was called? The control room. I would say, hey, Dad, I'm going to the control room. That's where this man, the DJ, sat in his chair, pushing the right buttons, turning the right knobs, operating the right volume control, speaking the right words to the community. The control room. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that Jesus is right now in the control room of the universe. 
It says that he is encircled in heaven by thousands and thousands of angels singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation chapter 7 says that right now in heaven there is a great multitude that nobody can count. It's so many people from every nation, tribe, people and language. Standing before the throne and in front of Jesus. And they're crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And one day, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Now those are the realities that are governing this world. I know we watch the news. We read the blogs and all of this stuff that tell us that the world is falling apart. I want you to know it's not. Jesus is in the control room of the world. Punching the right buttons. Turning the right knobs. Controlling everything. Overseeing everything. Therefore... You can have hope for the future. What's this got to do with the future? Everything. Because some of us are worried. Some of us are anxious about political and social unrest that's going on and seemingly getting worse by the, by the day. COVID-19, a very real problem. Cancer, other diseases that we might face in our bodies. Perhaps worried about unemployment or kids who aren't following the Lord. Or loved ones who are dying without Christ. Or uncertainty about how you're going to make ends meet. We could make a long list of things to worry about, couldn't we? And they're legitimate. You're not making it up. But the message of this text says that there is someone with a capital S who is bigger than those concerns and worries. Someone who is sovereign and in control of them. Abraham Kuyper he was the prime minister of the Netherlands back in the early 20th century. He is famous for saying this, There is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, this is mine. There's not a single square inch in the universe that Jesus, who is sovereign and in control, does not say, this is my square inch. He owns it all. He's in control of it all. So be hopeful today, even as you see what is going on in us, in the, around us in the world. Be hopeful, because Jesus has sovereign power and omnipotence. Healing from the past, hope for the future... But thirdly, because Jesus is our great high priest, we can have help in the present. Help right now. Look at verse 15. This is that great verse that Charlie emphasized with the children today. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we have one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now let's dwell on this whole idea of about the high priest for a few minutes, because it's foreign to you and me, right? Uh, unless you have a Jewish background, or if you were perhaps a Roman Catholic 
in your earlier life, um, perhaps you have a little bit better idea of what priests are. But most of us who are Presbyterians or Protestants kind of have a hard time in, you know, visualizing the high priest and so on. Um, a priest is someone who mediates or serves as a go-between between God and people. That's what a priest is or was. He's a go-between, or he represents you to God and represents God to you. And in the Old Testament, the high priest was the main dude. The high priest was the main guy. He was not only a Levite, which the priest had to be, but he was also a direct descendant of Aaron, who was the older brother of Moses. So the high priest line was very narrow compared to the line of the Levites, who were the main you know, the other priests. The high priest had the privilege and the responsibility of going into the Holy of Holies. That was that innermost chamber in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. He had the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of what? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that's right. And sprinkling the blood of a goat upon the lid of the ark of the covenant. What a great, what a great responsibility that was, right? That was only given to the high priest. And one of the things that we've talked about before back in our study of the life of David is that when the high priest was carrying out his duties, he had to dress a certain way. He had to wear certain prescribed clothing. And you can read about that prescribed clothing back in Exodus chapter 28. Uh, there was a robe that he had to wear, a special robe only for the high priest, and it had a breast piece on it that I'm going to talk about in a moment. It had an ephod, a tunic, a turban on his head, all these wonderful details that I, I don't have time to go into right now. But think about the breast piece. Now, the breast piece was this linen. It was square, and it was made out of linen, and it was held in place upon the ephod by gold chains. Exodus 28 talks about this breast piece. But here's the thing about the breast piece. On it were 12 stones. Now, when you think about the number 12, what comes to mind? The tribes of Israel, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel. On each of these different stones was written the name of one of the 12 tribes. Reuben, Issachar, Levi, Joseph. Judah, Simeon, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, Benjamin. Did I get them all? I'm not sure. I think I did. Every one of the 12 tribes was represented on the breastpiece. And Exodus 28, 29 says that whenever Aaron, or the high priest, enters the holy place... He will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece as a continual memorial before the Lord. So think about that, friends. As the holy, I mean, as the high priest went into the holy place, he would represent each and every person, each and every tribe of Israel before God, as though he were continually praying for every single person in the Jewish community. And verse 15 says about this great high priest Jesus, 
He sympathizes with our weaknesses. The word means that he feels in our heart, in his heart rather, exactly what you and I are feeling. He understands. Are you suffering? He's suffering too. Are you lonely? He feels your loneliness. Are you tempted? He knows what that's like. Are you despondent? He's been there too. See, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus, your high priest, remembers you before the Father. He represents you at all times. He has you on His heart. Your concerns, your worries, your challenges, your infirmities and weaknesses, your cares, your needs, they're all on His mind. Right now, Jesus has you on His heart. He's thinking about you. He is praying for you. He's interceding for you. So what has this got to do with the present? Everything. Everything. Because Jesus has been there. Because He is your high priest, you can do what it says to do in verse 16. Draw near. See that phrase? Draw near to the throne of grace. With what? Confidence or assurance. Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Why? So that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Focus on that word confidence for a moment. It means boldness or candor or frankness or fearlessness. It's the attitude not of an orphan who sort of fears the master. It's the attitude of a child, a dearly loved child who knows that his father is trustworthy and loving. And the words draw near are in the present tense. So it's really literally saying, keep drawing near. Don't stop drawing near. Always approach. Keep approaching. Always take your needs to the throne of grace. There's no need too big for God to handle and no need too small for God to care. This uh, encouragement to draw near. Why would the author of Hebrews want to emphasize that? Well, you remember what I've pointed out in this series, that these believers were Jewish in background, and they were being tempted to go back to their old Jewish ways, to a system of works and ceremonial laws, and keeping God at a distance. So the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 that... That's no longer being true of you. Draw near, he says in this passage. It's totally contrasting between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. See, back in the Old Covenant day, there was this caste system where the common people were not permitted to enter the holy precincts of the tabernacle and the temple. The priests could only go so far, right? They had to stop at the veil that was separating the holy place from the most holy place. The the only person who could ever go behind the veil was the high priest, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. When an Israelite person was being tempted to sin, he couldn't just run to the high priest for help. He certainly couldn't enter the Holy of Holies for God's help. But as a follower of Jesus... 
Guess what? You can run into the most holy place anytime you want to and talk directly to God, your Father, and to Jesus, your High Priest, and to the Holy Spirit who is filling you with His love and presence. You say, gee, that seems, Mike, that seems kind of, kind of arrogant to say that I can just rush to God anytime I want to. That seems kind of insolent, doesn't it? Listen, it's not arrogant. Hear me say this. It's not arrogant for the child of God to approach the Father boldly. It's arrogant not to. Because Jesus is your high priest, you can approach the Father boldly at all times, anytime you want. I was talking with someone recently who really struggles to pray. Prayer is a very hard thing for this person. And he said, Mike, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I feel like my words are so pitiful. That's exactly what he said. My, my words are so pitiful, I feel like God wouldn't be interested in hearing me pray. It's so, I'm so awful at it. Maybe you're like that person. Maybe you find it hard to draw near. Uh, Francois Fanelon was a Roman Catholic archbishop and theologian. He died in 1715. Would you please listen to what he says? It's really marvelous. He says, tell God all that is in your heart. As one who unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him about your temptations that he may shield you from them. Talk to him or show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare the indifference to good Lay bare your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. That's just great. So we're going to talk some more next week about Jesus being your great high priest. For now, just remember this. Remember what I said earlier, that Jesus wants to do something for you. He wants to serve you. He is asking, what do you want me to do for you? Heal your past? Give you hope for tomorrow? Give you help now? What? What? What will you say? Let's pray. Jesus, um, Jesus, Son of God, thank you for being our great high priest. Thank you for coming to us, for living a perfect life for us, for facing every temptation we face, for feeling what we feel and sympathizing with our weaknesses. Spirit of God, we pray to you this morning that you'd help us to draw near God. Maybe some of us do that on a regular basis. Maybe some of us don't know how to draw near. Would you please give us confidence to know that we have a Savior who not only understands but is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. A Savior who loves us and wants to serve us. 
Help us, Lord, draw near to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And now, Lord, we come to the table, the table that you've spread before us of bread and wine and grape juice. Jesus, thank you that you've left us these things as a way to remind us of what you did for us. You took our sins away. You paid our debt in full. But not only that, you're coming again someday. You rose from the dead. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, today that we will draw near you in this meal and believe that you're feeding us upon your love just as much as this bread and wine is filling us in our body. Lord, bless this time that we have of communion. May it be a means of grace, a means of growth, a way to draw near you, not just now, but every day. And we pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.